Amen. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we will be hearing Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. I hope as you sang that song, it didn't trigger like your stomach growling, thinking, oh, now it's time for lunch. But I do hope it makes you hungry, hungry to hear God's word of grace and even the triumph of the cross of Christ. Hear now God's holy and living word. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard and now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I refrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My my glory I will not give to another." Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would, have, would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow. For them from the rock, he split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. This morning, as we hear from Isaiah again, 
We have a chapter that maybe you don't recall ever reading, maybe in your Bible reading plan, if you read through Scripture, uh, maybe you have come across this chapter and you've pondered and just wondered, what is this about and what's going on? This morning, I want you to hear uh, God's Word and hear what God has promised in it. It is indeed words of life for us. So, let's consider the main point of this chapter, and this is the point that I want us to to hear this morning. God's determination for His glory to be exalted is the assurance of our salvation. God's determination, the fact that He is determined for His glory and His glory alone to be exalted is the assurance for your salvation. Now, what we find in Isaiah uh, chapter 48 is actually in this, this chapter, we could divide it in half and it divides neatly, the first 11 verses and the second 11 verses. But in those first 11 verses, what you're gonna see is that God's determination is greater than our craving for personal glory. His determination for His glory to be displayed and known is actually greater for our underlying craving for personal glory. Now, what we find as this chapter begins is God speaking to His people. He says, hear this, and that's a repeated word over and over in Isaiah 48. You'll hear, hear this, or listen to me, or I have spoken God speaks to His people, and what we're going to find that this is actually any time that God speaks, we find Him speaking to people who are, by their nature, obstinate, as we will hear. And so, this is is God's grace that He would speak to us, even in our rebellion against Him. And He says, hear this, O house of Jacob. God refers to them as the house of Jacob. You know, that's the, the grandson of Abraham. So Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is this, is as we see the promises of God filtering down. This is the chosen line, but we know Jacob, his name meant hill grabber. Jacob was by nature a deceiver. God says to his people, O house of Jacob, I need you to hear me. And then he describes them and he says, who are called by the name of Israel. That is, I believe God is saying, you you take on this name on yourself. You want other people to know you by the name of Israel. That is, that you're called by your covenantal status. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel because because Jacob had had refused to let go of God. He contended with God and and pleaded with God for his blessing, and God honored that. He, He gave him the name Israel. You'll be my covenant people. So, they claimed this name. They claim this name of Israel to themselves, but not only that, but they would say they came from the waters of Judah. They're, they're associated with this uh, ancestral pedigree. And remember, these are the people from the southern kingdom who were taken into Babylon, and this is who God is speaking to, speaking to those who would be taken into exile, and He says, you want to go by the name Israel, the covenantal name, and you want to be affiliated with Judah, the, the southern kingdom, the tribe of David, even. This is what you, you long for. Not only this, but He says of them, you swear by the name of the Lord. You, you swear by the name of Yahweh. And this isn't just, is not just taking oaths. 
It certainly doesn't mean that they took his name in vain, but they, they had allegiance, this outward statements, public allegiance to Yahweh. And they confess, we read in verse 1, the God of Israel. So they, they remember and declare God's name. In, in verse 2, you'll find that they call themselves after the holy city. So they say, we are the people of Jerusalem, maybe even the people of Zion. Our citizenship is in Zion. And verse 2, he says, they stay themselves on the God of Israel. Some translations, they lean on the God of Israel. They would say, we're, we're trusting God. These are, these are marvelous things, but God says in verse 1 at the end, but this is not in truth or right. Their, their declarations of trust or faith or their allegiance to the covenant people or their association with the holy city was all just pretense. It isn't genuine. It's a formal relationship, but not a personal relationship. It's an outward expression, but it's not sincere and of the heart. They had a form of godliness, but denied its power, as Paul wrote to Timothy about some that Timothy encountered in the church. They had an association with God, but what we'll find in Isaiah 48 is that their association was, with God was ultimately for their glory, not because they loved God's glory. So he sees through it, and we know as God says and speaks in 1 Samuel, we know that Samuel identifies that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees past the outward appearance, and he peers into the heart, and he sees past. He saw past his people's even formal religiosity their formal declarations or even those things that they want other people to see, but he saw past that and sees the heart and the, the lack of sincerity. It's not in truth, he says. So I want you to, to see, even from the beginning, the people he speaks to who are in captivity in Babylon, he sees even past their hypocrisy. But he goes on in verses three through eight, and this is a remarkable little passage where God gives an explanation as to why he spoke prophetically to them in the past. God, God spoke prophetically to his people in order to protect them from a temptation. Listen to what he says. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. So I, I told you what I was gonna do, and then suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. God is revealing that I spoke to you. I, I would say what I was going to do in delivering you, whether that was from Egypt or, or even delivering you into captivity in Babylon. I've announced these things to you, and then I did them. Why? Verse, verse 4, because I know that you're obstinate. <laughs> I did this because I know you're obstinate people. Because you love your own opinions and you love your own ideas, you love your own glory. Because you're obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. The, 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 the tendons in their neck, he says they're like iron and what he's representing is that you refuse to bow in submission to me. I know what you're like. You have an iron necks and your forehead is like brass, meaning, meaning that you won't repent. 
You think you're, you're, you're right, you cling to your opinions and your ideas and you refuse to repent even when I show you otherwise. So I know what you're like. I know that you're stiff-necked and hard-headed. I know that about you and that you're obstinate. And so I, I told you what I was gonna do and then I did it. Verse five, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Now, we, we have seen over and over that God's people are, are tempted by idolatry and they gave themselves over to that in many ways. Even as they're in captivity in Babylon, they, they see the, the gods of the Babylonians being exalted and, and it would seem that Yahweh's forgotten. They're tempted to say, yes, maybe these gods are powerful, but I don't think this is just about that kind of idolatry. What he's talking about is you would be tempted to say, the works of our hands accomplish these things. That's what idols are. It's the works of human hands. It's what we can fashion and make and what we can do and what we can control. Remember, God talks about this. You would take up an idol and you can carry it around with you and put it on a shelf. And that we don't have figurines or images typically that we carve and, and think that that thing that we've made can, can accomplish our works. We have plenty of idols though, where we think the works of our hands will secure us. The works of our hands give us hope or identity or favor with God and man. God says, I knew you were like this. <laughs> I knew you would be tempted to say, oh, we did it. We, we did it. He says, so I, so I told you I was gonna do it before I did it. This is God's grace even, <laughs> knowing his people. And so, so he acted to protect them even from that temptation. But it didn't end there. He says, you've heard and you've now seen all this. Will you declare it? You know that I acted in the past and that I delivered you. Now will you go and declare it like we just heard about missionaries who <clears throat> will go into hard places and declare things. And we can be so nervous. We live in an international city we're a major university. People from all over the world come here. We don't have to go away for the gospel to spread, but are, we know these things. Will we declare it? We will de declare it to our neighbors. It's not just people from afar that need to hear the gospel. It's people right here. Will we declare it? Well, he goes on though, and he says, from this time forth, I announce to you new things. There's, God's gonna share something fresh, something new that you haven't heard before. Now, this isn't that it's a new plan. God hasn't now suddenly come up with plan C or D. No, but this is new. You haven't heard this before. I'm gonna reveal something to you. And the reason that he's doing this, he says in verse seven, is I'm announcing this to you now because you'll be tempted to say, behold, I knew. I knew this all along. God says, if I don't tell you this is gonna happen, then when it comes about, you're gonna act as if this was your idea. So God says of his people, you are stiff-necked, hard-headed, know-it-alls. That's, that's the diagnosis. You won't bow to me, you won't repent to me, and you think you're smarter than me. Now, this is, this is God's assessment of his people, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse eight. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. Later, and we'll see this later in the passage, God says, I haven't kept things secret from you. You've just refused to listen. You refuse to hear me. 
Now, let me pause. Remember, if you've been in our study of Isaiah, this is, this is a portion of Isaiah's prophecy that he is speaking to people 150 years after his lifetime, and he is speaking to them words of comfort. This does not sound like words of comfort. This doesn't sound like good news as God is saying, I see past the external and I see the heart of the matter. And let me tell you about the true nature of my people even in bondage. He goes on to say, notice the second part of verse eight, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. This is your name, This is your true nature, treacherous and called a rebel. So God's people who were stiff-necked, hard-headed know-it-alls, were deaf to his voice, ignorant to his purposes, but he always knew that they would be this way. He always knew they would be treacherous. He knew even from before birth that they were rebels. I think it's a depiction of our original sin even. Even before birth, we're, we're born as sinners and we act out of that. This is the situation. But what we find is that God intentionally calls and reveals himself to such undeserving enemies. At, at this point in Isaiah 48, you're gonna bump up against something that you hear often, but I think we... we it's so hard for us to see this in ourselves. And what, what I'm talking about is how our minds are hardwired toward works righteousness. And by works righteousness, what I mean by that is we are hardwired to want a kind of acceptance and, and glory and love that we deserve. That's what we're hardwired for. We're, we're hardwired to think, well, well, of course I want, I want God to love me because I'm so lovable. Of course I want people to accept me because I'm so acceptable. Of course I want people to ap- applaud me because I've succeeded. Of course I want all of these things because of something in me, because of something from me. And what's underneath that, what's underneath that hardwiredness toward works righteousness is this longing for personal glory. Because if we, can, if we can grab just even 1%, 1% of the glory, we want it. Give that to me. In contrast to that, that fallen mentality, that, that hardwiredness it even seems in our nature that wants glory for ourselves, what we find up against that is the divine logic of God. And it is a logic of grace for us because it is a logic that is consumed with a determination for God's glory to be revealed. Not human glory, not fallen glory, but divine glory. That's what you're gonna hear. Listen to verse nine. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. When, when that's, that's a, like shorthand for, for the sake of my character, which is, which is um, kind of found in my name. God's name in, in, encapsulates all that he is, who he's revealed himself to be. For the sake of my character, my name, of who I am, 
I defer my anger. I don't punish you as you deserve. For the sake of my praise, that is God's reputation among others, God's, the praise of God that goes out into the world, for the sake of that, he says, I restrain it from you or for you that I may not cut you off. Why doesn't God cut off his people? Is it because just deep down we're, we're cute and cuddly? Is it because deep down he knows that we've got something in us that deserves it? Is it because we, we've gotten a couple things right? No, it's just for his name's sake. It is for my praise, he says. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake. He repeats it, driving this home. It is for my own sake. For that which pleases the divine nature and character of God. For that, he says, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is determined for his glory and his glory alone to be exalted. And by his grace, he has chosen for the ultimate demonstration of that glory being revealed is by loving sinners. (laughs) By setting his eyes and his gaze and his affections on people who don't deserve it at all. He he says to people who are stiff-necked, hard-headed know-it-alls, who he says, I knew from the beginning you're going to be treacherous and that you, you were in the womb a rebel against me, and I'm going to withhold my wrath from you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to not cut you off because that's going to display my glory. That displays God's mercy and grace and undeserved love like nothing else does. He has chosen to make his glory explode into the heavens by loving you in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it at all and loving me when actually I deserve his wrath and judgment. (laughs) Why does God save sinners for his glory? He says, for my own sake, that's why. And our assurance of salvation is not in our ability or our, anything about us. It is solely in the glory of God. He, he won't share that with anybody else. He says, it's all mine. And that's the gospel. It's, the gospel is just when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, when we were actually walking as children of darkness, living out our deadness of flesh, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. It is in in that condition that God's God's mercy and grace penetrated into our darkness, and by God's grace we're saved through faith. Not our doing, not of works. If it's of works, then we got something to boast about. God refuses to share his glory with anyone to include us, that we somehow merited our salvation, that we did 1%, that he got us to the edge and we just had to take that next little step. No, no. He says, it's going to be my glory beginning to end. I won't share that with anybody. Praise God for that. Because we would have never chosen him if he hadn't given us faith as a gift. He had to do it all. That's what Isaiah 48 is about. He's saying, look at your inadequacy. Look at your rebellion against me. My glory is going to be revealed in that. I'm not going to cut you off. I'm committed to you because I'm committed to my glory, being seen through my grace.
and kindness. Now he does say to his people in verse 10, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. The word tried, maybe you have a footnote, probably a, a better translation would, I have chosen you or I've distinguished you. You're set apart in the furnace of affliction. John Calvin has a I think a funny note on this is he says, I haven't refined you as silver. Calvin says, you, you refine silver by burning off the dross. If God were to refine us by burning off the dross, he says there would be nothing left. <laughs> it's all dross. It would all be burned up. But God says to his people, I'm, I'm refining you. Yes, you're experiencing hardship to his people in Babylonian captivity. I'm, I've refined you or back in Egypt. I did this. But it's, it's an act of my choosing you because God refines those things that he loves. Now, this is good news. This is good news that in his glory, God has linked our salvation with his glory. In fact, he has determined that his glory is most brilliantly displayed in the salvation of undeserving people who set his gaze on in love. The hope for people who've given way to a lifeless orthodoxy, like we read in the first two verses, the hope for people who've, who've given way to that is God's glory being revealed through His grace. The only assurance for people who have stiff necks and hard heads is God's glory being displayed in His undeserved love. The, home, the only hope for treacherous and rebellious sinners is not the acquisition of glory for ourselves or proving what we know, but the glory of God. Where do we see this glory? Where do we see God's glory on display in showing grace to sinners? Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we see God's glory most brilliantly displayed that God would love undeserving people even at his own expense? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his own son He sent his own son and he came to live a sinless life, a perfect life, a righteous life, and then to die a sinner's death. And in so doing, he came not to serve as an example, but primarily he came to be a substitute, to take your place to live in your stead, to die in your stead, to, to live a sinless life. And as, as we have faith in him, then that life is, is counted to us, that we're, we're clothed, as we read in some places in Scripture in Isaiah, we're, we're clothed in the very robes of God's righteousness. Not our righteousness, but his. His reckoned to us, imputed to us. The life of Christ. Now, God looks at us and sees that righteous life. Not because we lived it, but because he lived it. And our sin and the guilt and the condemnation for our sin, he carried, he carried up that hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he felt the shame. 
He felt the the humiliation of your sin. He felt all of the weight of the debt of your transgression, and he bore it on the cross for you. You didn't deserve that, and he didn't deserve that, but he took it in your place. That's the glory, the glory of God on display. That's why we can sing about the glorious cross. It's a, it's a place of torture and death, but it's glorious to us because our Savior, our Savior bore our sins in his body there. And that very Savior died and was raised for our justification that we would have standing before God, that we would be accepted. So all of our salvation is found in and through Jesus Christ. It is in Christ alone. That's the hope. That's the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a second half of Isaiah 48 to consider, and we'll consider it quickly. We also see that God sovereignly works. He sovereignly works to order all things for his people's good and for his glory. He actively works for our good and for his glory. Verses 12 and 13, there's a, this is an incredible passage that, that warrants a, a series of sermons on the sovereignty of God. Let me just read this again. Listen to how God describes his sovereignty and that he is unique. He is alone. He alone is God. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. God says, there's no one like me. I am the one who created it all. And now he's saying, and I am the very one who's called forth creation. Jesus Christ, even the son of God, in the face of the winds and the waves, could simply say, be still. And it was still the one who has authority and power is the one who is speaking. And in just a little bit, he's gonna say, and I am your redeemer. I will deliver you. The one who has all authority has chosen to make his glory known by saving his people. He will work all things. And so he describes in verses 14 and 15 that he is going to deliver them through the work of Cyrus. That's who he's referring to there, that Cyrus is going to perform his purpose in Babylon. Cyrus is gonna be this this pagan king, this Persian king who's gonna come and conquer Babylon and God's gonna use him to to fulfill his own purpose. And and the Jews in that day were, were alarmed at this. This isn't how we wanted to be saved. This isn't the kind of redeemer that we thought we would have. We don't want you to use some pagan king to fulfill your purpose. And God is saying, I'm God. I'm God. It's my hand that's working. Will you accept it? Will you accept your circumstances, whatever they may be? We know that hundreds of years later, Jews would also struggle once again when another Messiah came, the true Messiah. The true Messiah came and and said, I must die. Who said, I have to give my life as a ransom. His disciples, no, Lord. No, Lord, surely not you. That's not the kind of Messiah that we're looking for. Others would want to drag Jesus and make him king, and he, he said, that's, that's not why I'm here. I'm the good shepherd who's come to lay down his life for his sheep. 
Well, here God is saying again, I am sovereign and I will work. I will use my purpose. All these things are serving my purposes and my ends. He says, draw near to me in verse 16. Hear this. From the beginning, I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. God's saying, I'm close to you in my word. I'm speaking. Hear me. And then we have this little statement. Just right here at the end of verse 16, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. It's hard to know who that is. It could be Isaiah speaking. I don't think it's Cyrus speaking here. Who is it the Lord God has sent with his spirit? I think this is foreshadowing, looking ahead to what we're going to hear next week in Isaiah 49. Maybe looking back to the servant who's been introduced in next week, we're going to hear about the coming work of the, of the servant of the Lord. The, the one who won't only raise up Jacob, but actually will be a light to the nations. This is the unexpected one. This is where we're going to see Isaiah blossoming and unfolding in this gospel declaration of the coming of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to be here next week, Lord willing. Uh, Stuart Swain, teaching elder, RUF director, will be here to share with us the good news of the servant of the Lord. So God promises this, that this will happen. This Redeemer is coming. Look at verse 17. He says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, I'm here to, to redeem you, but he's also the Holy One of Israel. So he will deliver his people, but he is also a God who does not overlook sin. He does not simply disregard sin because he is holy. He says, I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go. The, the second phrase helps us understand the first one. I'm gonna show you the path that leads to good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the way you should go. Will you trust me? Again, this is, I believe, one of those points where we're gonna have to, to, to examine and look at our, our hardwiredness toward thinking of works righteousness and we'll be tempted to hear what follows in that kind of way, but that's not in the logic of God here. He says, I'm going to, to teach you the way to go. I'm going to lead you in good paths. Not because you've earned it, but because I love you. So will you let my word direct you? Don't you see and know that I'm trying to point you in paths of righteousness? And that too is for my name's sake. But you need to know his people and we still need to know. But there are consequences for rejecting that. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand. That's not just about, about being fruitful and multiplying, but that's, that's words of God's covenantal blessings. If you had listened to my voice, there's, there's consequence for sin and you have not experienced these things. This isn't about works righteousness. This is about trusting the goodness and the love of God. God speaks and he guides us through his word. So his people will experience peace and blessing. But they refuse just like we often refuse. And instead, they experience the crucible of affliction. But as we read back in verse 10, God tried them in that furnace of affliction. And he says, I've chosen you. I haven't cut you off. I've distinguished you. I've set you apart. Is he talking about Egypt? Maybe. Maybe Babylon. Maybe just adversity, maybe struggles. 
But in the hands of the sovereign God of all creation, we can trust any and every circumstance has a purpose. Now, I'm not saying that when we encounter problems that that means that God is displeased with us. Not at all. The writer of Hebrews says, God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines us. He teaches us and shapes us and molds us through those things. And they have a purpose in his hands. Whatever may come, it has a purpose in God's sovereign hand. And that purpose is the praise of his glory. And his glory is the assurance of our salvation. <laughs> he tells his people, leave Babylon. When, the, when Cyrus comes, leave and praise God for it. Shout for joy. Rejoice and delight in it. But he knew that their deliverance from national captivity wouldn't solve a deeper sin issue. And so he closes the chapter by saying, for the wicked, there will be no peace. Don't think if you continue in your wickedness that you'll find peace. He still had to solve that problem. How will God remedy the struggle that we have with sin? And he will do that through the servant of the Lord that we'll begin hearing about next week. I have three closing admonitions. As you hear this passage today or read it again, maybe in the coming days, if God reveals to you that you have embraced a type of religious formalism that has the appearance of godliness but denies its power or his power, don't settle for it. Such formalism will deceive you into thinking your confidence is in God when in fact your boast is in your own observances and your own declarations. He wants you to see and know and enjoy him and boast in him alone. Secondly, are you stiff-necked and hard-headed? Are you unwilling to submit to God or to repent of your pride before him? Do you see that deep yearning in your own heart to be glorified and declared right instead of a glad surrender to God's glory and declaring that he is right? If so, admit that to him. Confess that to him. He is gracious and merciful, and he wants you to know his kindness for those who are crushed in spirit. Third, are you tired of trying to prove yourself or secure yourself? Maybe you are a dutiful striver trying to show that you are worthy of God's love or worthy of the praise of other people. Or maybe you're like the air traffic controller in your life, trying to manage all of the events and the emotions and the circumstances that are constantly taking off and landing and you're just trying to keep it all from crashing to the ground. Or maybe you're a worry warrior, thinking you can control life through your own anxious fears. Or maybe you're an escape artist who runs to anything and everything that will help you forget about that nagging sense that there's more, there's something more, maybe even someone who is infinitely more, who I just can't seem to control or find, whatever your condition. None of those postures can save you. None of them provide assurance of the peace that you long for. 
The one thing that does is God's determination, his insistence on his glory being revealed by saving you through his grace in Jesus Christ. That is your only hope. And he is everything. He is everything. He meets every demand. He meets it all. And he offers it to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that indeed it is living and active and it is sharp. That it reveals even the very motivations and intentions of our hearts. Lord, as you reveal those, I pray that we will be quick, quick to turn and see Christ. I thank you that your word shows us Jesus in all his glory. May we see and know and have a knowledge of the light of the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've loved us, that you have faced what we couldn't face, that you have died in our place and been raised for our justification, our salvation. Help us to put our faith fully in you, trust completely in you. And in doing so, may we get a glimpse and have a growing awareness of the unbelievable glory of God. In Christ's name, amen.